gentlemen to pounding the table we are here live on thursday night and we have an extremely special episode because we have our first guest ever here on pounding the table the markets have been extremely choppy but as of now futures are looking a little up i'm heading off to the poconos this weekend to celebrate my buddy's birthday but before i leave for the weekend we gotta give the people what they want. And what the people want is a little bit of pound nations. Just to start this off with a quick disclaimer, thoughts in this podcast are purely that of opinion of our own personal investments. Everything said on every episode of Pounding the Table, as well as of our Twitter account, are not and should never be used as financial advice, recommendations, or solicitation. And for those of you who are new, Pounding the Table is a podcast by Avi Mash and yours truly talking about the stock market, the art of options trading. And each week we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted, which is especially important this time of the market. That's right, Tony. Sounds like you're getting that thing memorized, but enough with the boring. Let's get into the glory. Well, lack of glory. So how did the market do last week? Yeah. So, I mean, we've obviously been in this little bit of a correction. I mean, it's actually now technically a, an actual correction. S&P 500 is down more than 10%. The NASDAQ is about 15% off its recent highs. So, I mean, that constitutes a full-blown actual terminally called correction right there. So, you know, I think the markets are in a position where We've had such an amazingly massive run since the March lows. And now like, I think the market's just kind of cooling off. And we have a lot of news flow now that's coming out that's not as positive as it was. It was so great right after March, and now it's getting a little worse, which is obviously understandable, right? Like not everything's great all the time. Not everything's horrible all the time. Stocks don't go straight up all the time. Stocks don't go straight down all the time. But obviously the markets last week and the last few weeks have continued to head lower. But the selling to me looks extremely systematic. It's something you can call a rolling correction, right? So we first corrected from the NASDAQ, right? QQQs, the tech index. So that is kind of what happened also in June at the same time. And then we moved on to the S&P 500 as a whole, which corrected significantly along with that. And uh, the rut was holding up pretty well during this whole time, but then the rut corrected as well, very, very strongly, went down like almost four or 5% in one single day. And then now we have the precious metals, you know, gold, silver, all that have been correcting as well. So what it is, is just basically people are taking risk off, right? So people do a lot of risk parity. So they buy some tech, some cyclicals, some metals, and they try to hedge everything. You know, Bridgewater, uh, Ray Dalio is a big proponent of this. He, he does this in his all weather fund, and I'm, I'm doing the bunny quotes again. Clearly, it's not all weather because everything's right now dropping in, in the same situation as, as was in March. And so right now, you know, there's a lot of good stocks in the market still, but there's majority of them are doing pretty poorly. You know, the, the tick on the market was, I think it was a negative 1900 or something. So it was the lowest since March. So clearly you've had some pretty bearish bias recently. I see a lot of people on Twitter calling for sub 3000. And I see, you know, weirdly enough, I see some people calling for 
3,600, 3,800. So it's very, very crazy to see such a dichotomy between the two thoughts of you know the financial markets and Twitter and stock twits and all these other financial community sites. As some stocks have gotten killed, you know, a lot of them have actually held really, really well. And many barely dropped as much as the indices during this. And some of the ones that we like to talk about a lot were some of the big winners, actually. Though Fiverr, because I actually just raised in my top five positions because I love the company so much after looking a lot into it, reached new all-time highs. Invitae, N-V-T-A, ticker symbol, also did fantastic. So you're looking here at a bunch of other stocks as well, LVGO, SCSQ, and those, you know, they did correct initially, but they were the first to bounce back and did well. So that's actually showing you a little bit of strength in different areas of the market. And as for the other names that I love, this is kind of a time where it provides good opportunities to dollar cost average on your aggressive positions that you want for the future, for your long-term holds. So these huge drops let you get into prices that you really otherwise wouldn't get in a normal market that's not correcting. You know, things like Mealy, Tesla, ISRG, you know, Tesla went all the way to 540 then down to 330 at some point. So if you want to be an investor, then like that's an opportunity you haven't gotten for a long time in certain stocks like that. But it does kind of just seem to be a slight valuation adjustment for some of these names, initially at least. You know, uh, For me though, I saw something on Friday that was really, really enticing to me in these growth names. And this happened actually in June. And this is when I actually started rebuying a lot of these positions and adding to them is Mealy, Shop, Zoom, and Tesla all were going up on Friday while the markets were correcting. So that kind of shows you that a lot of what happened in the last few weeks was due to SPX rolling, which we talked about the indices roll over to the next quarter's month, quad witching, which we've gone over in a few podcasts, and rebalancing of you know index funds, mutual funds. So all that's kind of going on at the same time. But Mealy, Shop, Zoom, Tesla are not in the S&P 500. Um, so they have a little bit of a better situation here in this market correction. So if those are getting sold off, then everything's obviously getting sold off. And when everything's getting sold off, nothing's going to be doing well in the markets. But as soon as you start seeing the leading stocks, which Mealy, Shop, Zoom, Tesla, those kind of stocks have really been, that's kind of when you see that it's a bottoming process that's kind of going on. The bottoms of a market take time to create most of the time. It's a process. Whereas the top, as you know, is just usually one day and then we just crash from there, Avi. So do you think that like V-shaped recovery, everyone always talks about, do you think this time is a little bit of like gasoline on the fire with the injections of cash and now maybe it's coming back to somewhere in the middle where it maybe should have been without all of that injection? Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of it was that we ran way too hard, way too fast. And a lot of stocks were really, really, really stretched out. I mean, like you had some stocks that went 200, 300, 400, 500% over where they were before this was bad. And obviously some of those stocks had reason to do that, right? Like, you know, Zoom had the world's best quarter of a company of all time ever. Um, So clearly that should have gone up. And I know a lot of people think, and we've talked about this before, that those stocks are not going to be doing just as well after this pandemic is over, you know, hopefully soon, who knows though. Um, But I do think that that is not really the case. I think a lot of these names that have gone up leaps and bounds have that exponential base that's grown and then they'll grow from that base that sticks, which will obviously be higher than, you know, had the pandemic not happened. And those are like the e-commerce, the payment processing, the uh, telehealth medicine, like those kind of companies that will continue to do well in the future. But it is just a fact that the markets were way, way over their highs and the economy is not all the way back. But once again, we've talked about interest rates being probably one of the biggest drivers of the market's forces. And we've talked about the Federal Reserve stimulus being another huge, and and the Congress's stimulus as well, being huge proponents of a market rally. So those are the two big reasons, in my opinion, that we did rally. And apart from the fact that in March, you know, that huge drop so fast, 
indices were down 40% in a few weeks. That factored in all the bad news. So if anything got better, which it obviously did since then, on the economically it did, um, that's why we ran so fast, so hard. But it's just cooling off, in my opinion. You know, when you do see the stock market go down for a day or two, all of a sudden the world's ending. People are losing their shirts and everything like that. But just trying to understand, we are heading into elections. There's a lot of news. What do you think? corrections do show you in terms of what are the best stocks? Yeah. So this is actually my favorite part of corrections. Obviously no one likes the market crashing unless you're completely net short, which rarely I ever am unless I'm in a pretty heavy cash position. Uh, Besides being able to buy some of my favorite long-term names, which I know will be many, many times their current value now in a few years is, is actually just seeing which stocks perform best relative to all the others in that sector and just in the market as a whole. So, right, like we talked about the ones that held super, super well, right? Like Livongo, C Limited, Square Cash, Fiverr, Invita- NVTA. So those held very, very well. In fact, two of those made brand new highs, like five, 10% over their recent highs before this correction even happened. So you kind of see that these names have bounced back first. So that already shows you that the market's accumulating a little bit of strength and it's putting money into the best stocks, right? Like, nope, when the market's kind of like crapping the bed, you don't want to put money in the stocks that are not going to be the best performers in the next five or 10 years. Like that's that's when people can show, you kind of see the, like you're playing poker, right? You see the person's card when this happens, you see the market's card. So you know which stocks will A, perform the best in the future and then B, will do best in the next correction. So you can accurately adjust and weight your portfolio by risk set by that. So I kind of just take the low of a stock and I divide that by the high, right? So, and then like, you know, one minus that number shows you how much it declined during this time period. So since the NASDAQ and SPX corrected about 15%, you can see what should happen to these stocks in the next correction, that's about 15%. So you can kind of place and and accurately like calculate your risk and know what it's going to be should we drop another 10% or 15%. And usually those numbers, you can extrapolate those and go further, right? So if a stock dropped 10%, if the market dropped 10%, if the market drops 20%, it's likely to drop 20%. So you can calculate that. And a lot of people call that beta, but beta doesn't, it's, that's not actually how that works, right? Let's say the market's up 1% and a stock goes up 5%, it's going to have a way higher beta than a stock that goes up 1% when the market goes up 1%. But that's not necessarily indicative of like what people are demanding right now to buy and what people are interested in buying. So you want to just calculate that on your own, in my opinion. Like it's basically me creating my own beta. So you see which ones will be the first to bounce back and possibly even make new highs while the market's still correcting. And I, I think a lot of people own companies that they love, which is great and I, exactly what I do as well. But it's so crucial and important to factor in appropriate risk. And this is the biggest thing to take away from corrections like this. You know, I actually weighted and increased my positions in the stocks I mentioned just now that have held up the best. So like those are basically my top five or six positions now just because I've seen the relative strength in those is incredible, especially during this crash, right? If you can make a new high on a high growth tech company when all other high growth tech companies and the markets in general are melting, I mean, that's a fantastic stock. That shows that that has demand. People are buying it hand over fist. That shows that people think it's such a good company that they don't want to sell it even during this time of the correction. So for me, you know, once again, these are now my top five, six holdings. And I've adjusted that accordingly because A, if the market keeps dropping, you know what they are. You know how strong they are and that they will continue to hold, if not make new highs. Maybe they'll go up lower, of course, like, you know, stocks trend with the market generally. But it's all about how strong they hold in that position. And B, if the market rips higher, they will clearly be the outperformers. 
right? They're, they're holding in a bad time. So in a good time, they're going to skyrocket. And that, that for me is what I look like for long-term holdings. Makes sense, man. I mean, times of correction, they totally shift industries and obviously COVID has accelerated this 10x. I made this poker analogy. Shout out to our boy DJ, who's a great poker player, even a better dude. But where's the market going? Is there a, an ace up the market sleeve, if you will? What's causing this market volatility and then the correction? And even more so, like, how does this kind of thing end? Yeah. So, I mean, there's clearly huge support levels on all these indices, right? So the NASDAQ has its own very big support levels. And since tech was crashing, I was using those support levels. But now that tech's actually holding better than the general markets, I've actually like started using the S&P 500 for my support levels. And I've been doing this at the same time, kind of simultaneously. But now I'm really just looking at the S&P 500 because unless you know the NASDAQ crashes significantly under 10,000, it's, it's going to be more about where the S&P 500 bottoms now. So we have some significant support levels on the way down, and most of those have gotten broken through. But for me, the biggest one, and I've been saying this on Twitter, the biggest support level is 3232, right? And for me, that's a really, really strong level. That was not only the June highs, that was a really hard level to get over when we were doing well before COVID even happened. So that level has a lot of support, a lot of you know stops are there, a lot of buying power is there, and a lot of the volume of the market is lining up right there, as well as with the NASDAQ about that level. So we've held that support really, really well and bounced off of it many times. And what does happen in times like these that I think people get kind of shaken up by is that there are flushes that can happen right underneath the bottom level. And I'm not saying that this is the bottom level, but it very well could be. And so today, for example, today's Thursday when we're recording this, it flushed under a bit. And to me, if we would have flushed under and crashed, you know, under 3,200 and continued diving, obviously that would signal that we'd have to go to the next support. And the next big support would be 3136, which is the high after the Federal Reserve first did its like first attempt to fix the markets, you know, back when COVID first started. So that's a huge, huge level as well. But the market did a quick reversal off that bottom. It didn't even get close to 32. 200. So, you know, today I instantly flipped out of my puts and rolled into calls because I just felt like, wow, like a lot of people are going to be trapped under that level. And that's what it is. It's like the, the definition of a bear trap as was the other day, the definition of a bull trap, right? You go right over the resistance and then you crash under and that's a, a, a bull trap. And then you go right under the support and then you rip over and that's a bear trap. So people get short, people get long, and then they get trapped on both sides. And then it's a tough situation for them because the reversals could be pretty quick. Like it was today, we went from 3209 all the way to 3279 almost. So had a 70 point rip. And then we, you know, we did sell right back off one. So while no pop is always sustained, even the dips are, you know, they continue lower and they do bounce sometimes, but it's a lot of systematic selling still. So it's really easy to see that there's a clear downtrend level on both the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. So you have to wait for these bearish wedges, which is what the pattern, the technical analysis pattern that they're creating, they have to break out of them. And generally, bearish wedges break out to the upsides, and they rarely ever break down. And I'm beginning to get more bullish as the bearish wedge is getting tighter and tighter. Think of it as like a triangle, and it's approaching the the tip of the triangle. So it's getting tighter and tighter, oscillating in between. So I think it has a lot to do with coronavirus fears being brought up again in many places of the world, like specifically Europe, it's kind of getting a second wave there. We've got these fears of mutated strains. So that opens another door of uncertainty, which is the number one thing that the market hates is, you know, uncertainty. The Fed hasn't done anything more uh, in Congress has really not even talked about stimulus for weeks and weeks. So people are getting really, really worried about, you know, we're just kind of 
in in the creek with half a paddle and we're just trying to paddle along and then we have this quarter three rebalance the market ran up so much so funds have to sell stocks elections are coming up so in my opinion it feels like this is like a very risk off situation for many investors and and many money managers who just came back from the Hamptons in the last few weeks are trying to lock in those gains and rebalance their portfolios along with the index funds balancing their portfolios systematically if they have to ahead of the start of the fourth quarter. Regardless, this will end at some point. You know, nothing ever goes straight up and nothing ever goes straight down. So the way that this ends is with a news flow change, right? So we've just had bad news. And what usually happens is you get one piece of bad news and you get 50 pieces of bad news. And then you start getting one piece of good news and then you get 50 pieces of good news. So that's kind of what's going on here. We started getting the first bit of good news today with the stimulus talk starting to get back into play because people were worried, like saying, hey, like things are not great for everyone. Things are still really, really rough. What are we going to do to fix things and continue it? Like I read this statistic that coronavirus checks of $1,200 from the amount of time that it happened was only like $7 a day per person. So clearly nothing and no help really. We have to break out of that downtrend that I was talking about, that down wedge. So to me, I really think we need 3330 on the S&P 500 and 11,400 on the NASDAQ. But keep in mind, we still have zero rates. The potential for stimulus is there. So I actually believe things will get better very soon. If not, they have started to already. You know what I think we need is a stock market Batman. But we all know Batman is not real. But no, 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 and it's from Israel. Actually, we cannot do a podcast without talking about Nanax. Now, obviously, Nanax has been absolute roller coaster: up ten percent, down ten percent, up ten percent, down ten percent. There's been some crazy, crazy short reports, though. Not only from Citron, we had another one from Muddy Waters. For the folks that don't know, can you? Get us up to speed on, on what was going on with those. Yeah, I just think, you know, people have to just know one thing and and really hold on to this, right? All of these people who release any type of report, research, analysts, whatever it is, Citron, Muddy Waters, all these people are just like me and you, right? Sure, they do deep research, but at the end of the day, it's just their opinion. And just like it's just my opinion. So whose opinion is better is only going to be shown by price. Like, They can be right. They can be wrong. And most of the time, Citron's wrong. And most of the time, Muddy Waters is actually better than Citron. Um, But, you know, for instance, Citron was long LK. Muddy Waters was short LK. So, you know, Muddy Waters has a little bit of credibility to me. But, you know, Citron was also short NVIDIA. And they were short Tesla. And they were short Shopify. So why do you give so much credence to what they say when they've shown you that they were wrong for companies that went up 50, 100x? That just shows that their opinions from time to time can be horrible, right? They did nail a few Valiant and this and that, a couple great trades, which solidified their name and stuff. But really, in my opinion, there's nothing different between what they're saying and what I'm saying, right? Like nothing that they said is anything I didn't know already. Nanox was formed by a group of former Sony engineers focused on nanotechnology, and they intended to utilize that tech to solve the problem of early detection imaging in healthcare. So that thing that they were saying about Nanox has like no research, no actual like IP and stuff like that. Sony spent over a billion dollars working on this thing. They worked on this technology. And then the CEO of Nanox now, um, I don't know how to say his last name, Palakian or what, you know, I, I don't know. But regardless, he took that, had the idea to use it for x-ray imaging, and they're working on this now. Like, this is a newer company. This is not like a 30-year-old company that's trying to like dig out of the ground and, and do something well. And th- there's just so many things about that report to me that were really, really ridiculous. And there was also 
a few things that obviously made sense, right? Like they don't have really huge videos that are like from the company showing that this thing is working really well. You have the one from the Israeli health center that shows the prototype working in this and that. But regardless of all that, this is a, this is kind of like a company where you have to just kind of believe in the vision and think, well, this is probably going to work or this is not going to work. Right. And that's why the stock went from 20 to 60 and I sold half of 60. So no matter what, I'm not going to lose money ever. And honestly, no one really should because we mentioned that we were selling half of 60. But in my opinion, I think they're dead wrong. I think that this has the potential to revolutionize this space. And just for the potential that it can revolutionize this space, that's enough for me to put my money in there. And hearing the CEO go on Motley Fool and what he said, and Motley Fool is very reputable, right? And the CEO came on there had fantastic answers to questions. You can go check it out, honestly, at the Molly Fool. That, that's a really good interview, in my opinion. And they have these investors, right? They have SK Telecom, they have Foxconn, Fujifilm, Yozma Group, BlackRock just put money in. Like, it's it's very crazy to me that all these companies who are huge, like Foxconn works for Apple, like BlackRock is like the leading asset manager in the world. You think all those companies are going to not do their own DD? Like this isn't GM. Like those are like really, really legit companies. So in my opinion, I disagree with Citron. And I've disagreed with them 50 times and I'll probably continue to keep disagreeing with them. Like, I, I think I'm right. That's okay if I'm not, but we'll have to see, you know, nothing has changed from when I posted my thread on NX from when all the research we talked about, none of that has changed. They're just saying, well, this company's made no revenue. We know that that's why they're pre-revenue, which is the first thing we said about them. So we'll just have to wait and see. The one thing that has changed is options have finally made their way to the market for Nanox. Beyond the Motley Fool, I actually listened to the CEO on Oppenheimer webcast. They were at the healthcare and life sciences. These guys are legit. This dude is super, super smart. They got $440 million in the bank, zero debt. This is all from the interview. This dude was the founder of the first wireless charging station. So PowerMat Technologies, those are the things that are in every single Starbucks nationwide. This guy is a genius, but Mr. Polykine, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, here's my plea. Just show us a live stream of someone in the device. Come out and please clown these guys at Citron, Muddy Waters. The second that happens, I'm I'm all in on this thing. Yeah, absolutely. And in no way am I getting out, right? And the fact that there's options now provides you a good opportunity, right? You can buy long-term puts on the stock to protect it in case it goes to zero, which I genuinely give that a 0.01% chance. But if it does, you can just buy like three, four, five, six month outputs to protect yourself if you want to do that. That's a very smart strategy. But just the potential for it, in my opinion, right? Like there's some data here that I want to share. Traditional scan in the US costs an average of $3,000, while globally that average is $300, Polyakin said. And Nanox is only charging $30 per scan. That's pretty incredible. So in my opinion, they have the potential to disrupt the industry completely. And it's a pretty large industry, like $21 billion a year, total addressable market. So that's really huge. And a lot of people, I know Avi, you posted that uh, thread or series of photos of me saying that the day that those short reports came out, that Nanox would go positive and close at 30, which, which it did exactly after opening at 22. And the reason for that is not just a guess, right? That, that is actually experience because I've seen this happen before. And what happens is, right, Citron came out and released that article when it was like 50 something and the people already piled in short. Then Muddy Waters jumps on the bandwagon, tries to make a quick buck. And at the same time, there are so many shorts getting piled into this because everyone's obviously listening to those people as they think they're reputable. And you have this 
huge boat of shorts, right? And they're, they're going to sink the ship. So what happens is they have to cover. They have to jump out of the boat to let it float. So what happens is the stock goes up as they have to cover. When there's huge short interest on a stock like that, you're shorting in the hole. It's a bad idea to me every single time. I will never short something down X and X percent when I don't think anything's changed about the company. This is going to happen to a lot of the stocks I own. And this happens actually to the more stocks that I own than I want to. And that's okay. Because if that's going to happen to Tesla shop and NVIDIA again, bring it on. I, I want that to happen because you're piling in shorts, which will fuel us higher later. And I don't think anything's changed about this company, right? I could be completely wrong. This is all up to you what you want to do. I'm long Nanox and I'm staying long. We're rocking. The energy is back. And it is time for Tony's rules. Tony, what do you got for us this week, baby? You know, I've been doing a lot of thinking. You know, there's a lot of things that I can tell you guys that I tell myself and I tell my my friends and like family members who do stocks and everything. Like this is one of my most important rules and it's it's not even a trading rule at all it, it's it's a personal philosophical really <laughs> but it's know why you do this right like there's a lot of people i know who are just like oh i'm trying to make a quick buck or i'm trying to like catch a nice flyer 100 option this and that that's cool whatever you're having fun but at the core of being an semi at least serious trader you need to know what you're doing like you need to know why you're doing it more importantly than what you're doing honestly because even if you know what you're doing, if, if you don't know why you're doing it, you're going to be in a position where you can have everything right, but not knowing what direction you want to take will completely cloud your judgment, right? And if things get tough, like as they've been recently, you can get demolished, even if you've been doing super, super well. So you want to know what your goal is for why you're even doing this. Like, why do you wake up in the morning and check the markets? Why do you touch the computer and trade stocks? Like, this is a tough thing for people to comprehend. And it's the most simple thing because it's just your answer to yourself. Some people want to make this their career, like myself. Some people want to learn stuff and they find enjoyment out of it, like Avi, and it scratches an itch for gambling, I guess. And that that happens, you know, and there's just a hundred reasons why you do this. Like, But just doing this to try to get super, super rich, in my opinion, is like a cause for failure. Like I know some people who are like, and, I've, and I personally am that person, right? Like I try to take 10 grand to a million or whatever. And like, sure, I, I took 10 grand to 200K and then I blew up to zero. And then I took 10 grand to 200K and I blew up to zero because I didn't know why the hell I was doing what I was doing. I, I knew what I was doing, but not having your goals set and not knowing the reason why you wake up every day to do this is going to kill you in the long run. So make sure you figure that out. And it, it's, it's a conversation to have with yourself and really nobody else can tell you why. When I first got into trading, trying to bury bonds, Mark McGuire shit, yeah, rocking out of the park. And I did. I think the first time ever doing options, I went from five grand to $30,000 in two weeks. Two weeks later, that $30,000 was zero. The reality is you got to be smart. Trade another day was one of my favorite rules that you mentioned. I personally do it because it's fun. I love to see what has happened in the world and the news and really how that affects the market. And at the end of the day, I love to make some money too. The elections are coming up. It's always interesting to look at the effects, as I mentioned, of the news and especially what's going on in different sectors. And so one particular I really want to discuss here is marijuana stocks, right? which happens to be the theme of this week's Founders Thesis Pick. So, Tony, this was a hit. 
I sent it out there and I think we had like 30, 40 responses right away. A lot of great submissions. So we did pick one and then we had a two or three follow-ups as well. So which ones did you go with and more importantly, why? Yeah, absolutely. So I just want to give a shout out first to my main man, Van. He's at Wall Street Unicorn. The guy is an absolute legend, first of all. He has done some incredible research on this entire sector and he's actually shared a lot of the names that I actually chose for this uh, came from him in the past. And then, you know, other people mentioned them as well. So I'm glad that they're getting out there because they are way better than what people have been recently buying. I think a lot of people are obsessed with like Aurora cannabis and uh, canopy growth and like, fine. Like I I actually don't think Aurora cannabis is going here. I actually think that company is going to zero and CGC has some, you know, strength to it just because of constellation brands, but here for the pounders thesis picks. So what I wanted to do is mention a few names because I don't know any of these super, super well, right? Like I've done my preliminary research to be able to mention them and read about what other people have wrote on the post question that we asked. Something to consider when you're looking at a sector, right? You're not just looking at, for instance, like the car industry. You're not just looking at the car company. You're looking at the the production of that car, right? You're looking at which companies will be a ben- an ancillary like beneficiary of that. So maybe like Tesla with lithium kind of thing. And so we kind of put together three picks here that we want to look into. First one is by Naked Calls on Twitter, at Naked Calls. He's uh, initiated a position in Terra Ascendant Corp. T-R-S-S-F is the ticker symbol. It's trading about $4 a stock right now. It's got a few subsidiaries, Alera Health, Valhalla, Funky Farms, CBD, and uh, Rise Biosciences. So they reported a really strong second quarter uh, in 2020, net sales of $47 million and adjusted EBITDA of $11.4 million. So just knowing any company is doing some type of like profit in this sector is already a, a decent start, in my opinion. And Tony, with any company, you always want to look at their C-suite and you know who's the founders, et cetera. Their chairman, Jason Ackerman, is a Fresh Direct founder. Fresh Direct, for those of you who don't know, massive company out here in the Northeast. This company is the only operator that's in the US, the EU, and in Canada. They have massive expansion plans here in the U.S. They are partnered with Constellation Brands. There's been rumors and talks about getting into beverages that are infused with cannabis as well. So really excited about that. Yeah, I definitely agree, Avi. I'm going to give a shout out here to at Rob Stern. He gave another pick. So we're going to do three. Uh, T-C-N-N-F. And this is actually another one that Van gave me, uh, which I just mentioned earlier who he was. So this is a really interesting one for me. Uh, not only is it focused solely on Florida, Booyah, their long-term strategy looks like it'll win, right? So the fact that you're kind of based efficiently in one state, you know, you focus on the one thing that you know that you can do well, right? If you try to grow over the entire country, it's way harder than just focusing on one state. And obviously Florida is one of the most populated states in this entire country. And that kind of like led it to have better gross margin percentages, better EBITDA, uh, and a balance sheet that's better than another one that a lot of people are mentioning on Twitter is uh, C-U-R-L-F and G-T-B-I-F. So both of those are like kind of hot in the, the pot space recently for people. And it's better than those in terms of cash flow and servicing debt, which is going to obviously enable more acquisitions down the road in new regional markets if they choose to and when they choose to expand to other places. So this one's going to get a pound for me. I might get a double pound because really Van Man is the man. Um, and so the third one we want to mention here and this is one that I think almost everyone on Twitter has heard of because some of the biggest yeah a lot on, of people a lot of people were mentioning this one yeah some of the biggest players on Twitter have just been all over this thing and I know like Peru Saxena Chris Peruna both of those guys got into this one so 
at Canna Invest Three who gave the pick. Thank you. He said G R W G. So Grog is the real deal. Strong financial, strong growth, and no reverse merger. So can see the history of the company via SEC filings from the beginning of 2014 to now. The past CEO of Home Depot is actually a strategic advisor for this and an early investor. And investors have increased their stake at every fundraise, which is actually a really, really great sign for a company, especially in the early stages. It's got a low share count. So the last fundraise was set at 35 million and was max oversubscribed 20% more to 42 million, which is also a very bullish thing because you know a lot of these IPOs have been doing the same thing. They've been having huge oversubscription rates in the 10, 20, 30 multiples, which is really, really massive to see, especially considering where the markets are right now. Um, so he asked to take a look at their Instagram and grow pro. I like that grow pro channel, both show consistent marketing and show some more peaks into the company. Do you want to talk about the bad as well in, in these situations as they are newer companies and it's a difficult market to make sure that you're going to be making good investment in because it revolves a lot around the administration's policy, people's social perceptions, it all plays into this. A lot of people smoke pot and this country as a whole is going to federally legalize marijuana. There's no anyone who says no is wrong and just honestly just living in the stone age because this is going to happen whether you like it or not is going to happen if you can smoke cigarettes you should be able to smoke pot that's my opinion i'll pound that again but she said shorts will claim shadiness from the hindenburg report obviously hindenburg makes sense like they're very similar to uh citron and muddy waters but again go back through their filings and their instagram you see the company that's been slowly gaining momentum and at a big inflection point have around 50 million in cash on the balance sheet too, which those are all great signs. I don't know if I'm going to be loading this yet, right? I might wait until the election to see kind of what's going to be happening. Uh, obviously, I think that if Biden wins, this, the industry as a whole will really boom. We're switching it up. A little theme here to the thesis pick this week. We're switching it up even more. We are here live with our first guest, Sheikdal, who happens to be the first ever pounding the table thesis pick. What we wanted to do is bring you on as we know you're very knowledgeable about electronic vehicles. And so before we even get into any of that, you just tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been trading. Is trading a hobby for you? Is it full time? Yeah, glad to be the first guest, first thesis pick. It's a series of firsts. So you guys are doing awesome. Keep it up. I am a biotechnician slash microbiologist initially, now in sales and account management in uh, the CRO space and the biotech space. That's the the gist of my professional career. And trading-wise, I've been kind of like a lot of people this past year, it's like, oh, the second once-in-a-lifetime recession of mm-hmm. my life. Maybe I should kind of understand what's going on here and seeing everybody making, you know, thousands of percent shorting the market and that kind of thing. I was like, well, wait a second. I, I, I'm a smart guy. I can figure this out. So fits and starts of, of successes and failures as a hobby, part-time swing trades while still doing my career. And that's kind of where we're at now. The reason we wanted to, to bring you on, I saw you wrote quite a long thread here in regards to electronic vehicles, the automotive industry as a whole. Can you just walk us through what you see is going on, very high level, and what excites you about the electronic vehicle industry? So I've been following the EV space and I, I've got family who've worked at high levels in a couple auto companies and still do. And the GM Nikola partnership was really exciting when I saw that. I thought it was a really good idea by GM, but completely the wrong target. I kind of have the same feelings that Anthony does about Nikola. When I saw the picture of the CEO on a private jet, like, and not attending his first earnings call, I was like, something's not quite right here. But for GM, it made a lot of sense. The thesis that I have in terms of a longer term strategy for a GM or a Ford kind of fits in with what uh, you both like in terms of enablement. 
GM or Ford really have tried and failed for decades now to to innovate and bring something new to the market. We, you know, we gave them two decades without any competition and they got us more cup holders and more cameras facing backwards. Like nobody's excited for the Ford Focus 2021 now. It's just because even though they have the ability to innovate, they just have squandered that. And Tesla's kind of eaten their lunch. The way that I'm seeing them getting out of this was through the same kind of partnership that they were looking at with Nikola, enabling them to leverage their supply chain and their extensive network of distributors slash car lots. Those kind of infrastructure pieces can't be built overnight by Hylios or a Neo here in North America or a Tesla even. Those things take years, if not decades, to actually accrue. So the parallel industry that I am seeing here is the beverage brewery industry from the last six or seven decades, where at first it was thousands and thousands and thousands of different breweries. Your local town would have its own brewery distillery down to about five or six in the 60s or 70s, and now back up to thousands. As the cost of manufacturing went down and the knowledge base spread, they were able to get a broader audience and beverages being a lifestyle choice. I think that what Ford and GM are misunderstanding about this moment is that it's not about an electronic vehicle. Ford might have an electronic F-150. I don't actually know if they do, but people don't really care about that. They care about the lifestyle or the brand that is associated with it. Having a Tesla as a status symbol. Tesla in its own right has um, limited environmental help and the factories that building have a lot of environmental downside. So the strategy that I see for GM or Ford is moving these little EV companies into their innovation centers, becoming a WeWork almost for new EV SPACs or small companies, and then leveraging their infrastructure and their distribution network to actually get them out the door quicker. This is an Amazon 2015 strategy. You're taking your weaknesses and you're turning them into a strength. For GM and Ford, that is lack of innovation. For the newer EV companies, that is lack of infrastructure. It works across the board. The problem is with this kind of a strategy, GM and Ford are going to have to get out of their own way and really move towards being a contract manufacturer or an OEM producer and give up their goal of being number one in the world for innovation. Um, That's a hard pill to swallow for them. But at this point, if you're Ford and you have $180 billion in debt, you want some of that new SPAC IPO money slash hot to market money. That's super interesting. And I just want to thank you again for coming on to the podcast. Pleasure to have you here. And it's really interesting what you just said there about, you know, these companies, the the Fords, the GMs trying to break into this space. You know, they had an opportunity uh, many years ago to get into this space. They could have bought Tesla when it was $40 billion company. They could have put a lot of money in and had a partnership with them back then. They started really, really late with this entire, you know, the concept of just having an electronic car. They tried to have, you know, gas, oil, just be the standard and continue to be the standard. And I mean, anyone who really just like understands that the future is going to become renewable and sustainable, 
realized that that was not a great idea for them. And, and now they're trying to play catch up, as you were saying. So brings me to my next question, actually. A lot of these companies are starting to produce cars. You know, everyone's trying to get that attachment of EV into their company somehow. Similar to like when people were just putting .com behind their name in 2001 to make everything skyrocket. All those stocks were exploding or the, uh, you know, blockchain.xx, whatever, for in 2017 when cryptos were exploding. So I kind of see that happening again here. You know, you have Workhorse, Hylian, uh, Spartan Energy, even this one we were talking about a few minutes ago before this started, SPI, and that, it closed at a dollar, announced that they were doing an EV branch of their company, and then it went up 4,500% in one day. And that's just absurd. That's that's the definition of mania, in my opinion. So you, know, you just mentioned Nikola too. I mean, that has just been, that had a crazy valuation, started as a SPAC around $10 and went all the way to 93, 94. So that was a huge run and they haven't even begun producing a car really. I, I know everyone's feelings about that, especially with Trevor over there. You know, he did not do too well in that. I mean, he, he walked out really well, but I'm sure he might face some some unfortunate circumstances, possibly charges, but we'll see how that plays out. But regardless, even Porsche is coming out with a Taycan, which actually I looked at it and it looked really interesting. But the, the one thing I have uh, an issue with a lot of these companies is the huge valuation for a lack of production of a lot of cars. The the only one that I can really see that's producing anything even like really slightly substantial that's all electric as a company is is pretty much Neo, and and they're still you know a ways behind Tesla. I mean Tesla's really like the front runner in this space, and they've been for a long time since since 2008. They've been really chugging along here, with knowing that a lot of these companies are just you know adding EV to their name. Um, They don't have many cars in production, crazy valuations, and most of them have no really structure network to be able to charge or if they don't have like this Tesla service dealerships and, and that kind of thing going. So just want to know your thoughts on this. You know, my opinion has always been that Tesla is going to be the next Tesla. Just wanted to see what you think. I think it, it tells you two things. It, it tells you that there's a massive appetite for it. There are investors and there are consumers who want this. And I started following the small scale car manufacturing space back in 2013, 2014 with a company called Local Motors. And they made a really cool car called the uh, the name is escaping right now, but um, they made a small scale car sold out of all the production. And then they just didn't come up with anything new on the back of that. The 4,500% in one day kind of thing is obviously like a, a dot-com kind of mania for sure. But a lot of what you see in these market transitions is that the second to market ends up really eating first to market's lunch. So I think Tesla will have market dominance for a long time. The second most prevalent to market though, might be able to just capitalize on economy of scale. And that's why I really like jumpstarting these endeavors with the backbone of a existing supply chain, because that really is something that you're going to have to leverage if you want to meet scale and meet the moment, which honestly investors are asking you to meet. Nikola was going to do a good job of that if they weren't vaporware more or less. So uh, <laughs> hopefully the next, I, I'm just wary that Ford or Toyota or whoever gets scared off of these kind of, not even mergers, but basically becoming a tech incubator, they can easily afford to do that with their market cap and with their infrastructure and really deliver something, not with the Ford GM name brand logo, but the actual, I'm thinking something like built Nicholas Strong and built Ford Tough, you know, that kind of thing. If, If a Nikola car came to market right now, I wouldn't trust it, but if it was based on the GM or Ford backbone of infrastructure, I could see myself buying it. 
So I think that's really where you see the the rubber hitting the road for that front. But your points that Tesla is going to be the next Tesla really stands for a while. Speaking of Tesla, breaking news a few days ago is Tesla's actually getting into the mining business. So they bought 10,000 acres in Nevada. What do you think Tesla's future in China, considering they're naturally born EV players over there today, is going into mining going to be a big plus for Tesla? And does this widen its moat or do you think it will kind of create this drag moving forward in the future? At this point, you've got to think that Tesla knows best with regards to what they're going to need. And again, going back to what I was talking about with regards to you want to be Amazon 2015. You want to be looking at what your weaknesses are and making them a strength. Mining right now for them, precious metals, uh, supply chain disruptions with China, and particularly trade tensions with China for them are, are going to be something which is front and center in their minds, especially with some of the battery innovations that they're looking at. If they can cut out some of the more expensive components and have a supply chain and license out their batteries, they're going to be winning on three different fronts. It's like Amazon Web Services, right? They've got their whole mm-hmm. Amazon Web Services to back up their platform and they sell the excess out. So I think that's going to definitely help to build the moat around them. The fear would be that they spread themselves too thin. I don't see that happening yet, but it is something to be wary of moving forward. And I I think for now, it's definitely a good call, good choice. I don't think it's going to have any downside in the near future. And it'll hopefully just be a tailwind for them for the time being. In terms of thinking about the China-U.S. tensions, do you think China gets upset with Tesla that they're kind of moving some of their business back here to the U.S.? Uh, Does that kind of... Do they want to then pave the way for Neo to kind of be China's version of Tesla at a much bigger scale? It's hard to see how that plays out on a macro scale, but I would say that China uses it more as a piece of leverage. They can, until Tesla has a supply of lithium coming in, they still have control in that power dynamic. And as it looks more and more likely that Tesla will get included in the SBY in somewhere in December, the next round of inclusions, it'll be used more as leverage over the U.S. market because it will be a big player in the SPY once it gets included. So China, by default, gets some more traction and power over the U.S. market, which they can use as leverage in trade negotiations. It's shocking to me that Tesla didn't get added. I know it was all about the EV credit you know, gap profitability for them. And that was like an issue, I guess, with the S&P inclusion committee. But I do think, I mean, it's pretty shocking that the seventh largest company in the U.S. isn't in the S&P 500 yet. So definitely will be added. It's just a matter of when. To to the last question there, I think it's it's interesting to think like you've got all these companies that are producing these mainly lithium batteries and they they need a bunch of aluminum and different type of materials that they need, right? Like if you need semiconductors, you have to build, you have to get the memories and the transistors and everything. So there's definitely a lot of ancillary industries that are going to be growing and blossoming a lot in this EV wave and also autonomous driving, of course, right? Like you need the best artificial intelligence, the best memory chips, GPUs and all that. So which, which, you know, which industries or which companies do you see that are going to be sprouting because of this new wave or maybe the ones that haven't even started yet? Yeah, I think that a lot of the um, regional miners, especially miners in lithium, nickel, cobalt heavy regions are going to do well, obviously. How much of that is speculation versus how much of it actually affects the bottom line? I know that a mutual adoration of ours is uh, is Chamath, and he put a major pipe into FVAC recently, which is going to be mining a lot of those precious metals out of North America. Those kind of supply chain reinforcing projects, especially with 
everybody looking at how they roll out or push out their EV market uh, and their EV offering are going to be needed across the board. And, and another kind of ancillary industry is just going to be heavy machinery and equipment in terms of infrastructure building. The I think something that stuck out to me of the battery day was Elon saying, making the machine that makes the machine is really the mm-hmm. hardest part. So those kind of infrastructure projects and the pieces that are involved with that, uh, just because of the size and scale of those, fuel consumption isn't going away anytime soon. And the uh, companies that supply the major heavy industrial projects are going to still be needed at least for the interim. Next question comes from our boy CK, who said a lot of car enthusiasts, which I know CK is a massive car guy. I uh, share that Tesla and Porsche have proven you can outperform internal combustion engines. What sort of creative things are EV manufacturers doing to bring car enthusiasts into the fold? Are people going to miss that vroom vroom? Yeah, that's going to be the tough question, really, is that you, you for car enthusiasts, it's, it's not, and for the women listening, it's hard to explain. It's kind of, it's a vaguely visceral sexual feeling when it comes to cars for guys. And for those particular guys, which I think this tweet is referencing, it's going to be really hard to recreate that. You know, Tesla is slick. It's clean. It's nice. They're going the other way with the Cybertruck, which is a step in the right direction, I think. And, and to be honest, I think it's just going to be, they need content that really tailors to those people as well. Let the let the people see how it works. Let them know how much power and velocity they can get out of these things and get some models that really speak to them. And that's, again, another reason why I think these kind of cross initiatives between Ford or GM leveraging their infrastructure, you get like a really cool EV motorcycle that that makes maybe not the same noise as usual, but, but has a really zippy feel and zippy cool feel and drive to it and let people see how it's made, how it was designed. You're going to get a lot of earned media by doing that. You're going to get a lot of people picking it apart when it comes in, just like they saw how it was done on whatever the not Netflix documentary was or whatever the, the Hulu special it was that was involved in the designing of it. You've got this, this epic moment right now that I think companies are missing in the industry to where We've kind of forgotten about that subspace of people who really care about these vehicles, what they can actually do. Give them a bone. Give them something to latch onto. Give them the opportunity to see you design, build, bring something to market. And you're going to earn not only consumers for a lifetime, but advocates. And you being in sales, you know as well as anybody else, it's a much more powerful thing to have somebody come to you and want your product or service as opposed to you going to them and asking them to take it from you. Uh, And that's really where I think the divergence right now has to be grasped on by the Fords and GMs of the world because nobody is going to a car lot right now and saying, I've been waiting for that Sienna 2021. Finally, it's here. You know, you're, you're going there once you're getting the price. You're coming back in the third, fourth week of the month in the last month of the quarter. And you're looking for that friends and family pricing with the $3,000 rebate. And then you're taking that deal. Um, and because GM and Ford have trained us to do that. It's way more powerful if we can get those really amazing stories coming out of the development and manufacturing of it and getting that earned media and getting people walking in the door looking for that product. Maybe they can manufacture 
the sound of an engine, just like the NFL pumps, pumps uh, the, the fans into the stadiums right now. We'll just have that fake, fake noise. That's not actually from the engine itself. Um, awesome. Yeah. And obviously so, I think that they actually did that in like, uh, I don't know if some country in Europe, they were saying that they wanted to have, the Teslas have some type of noise because uh, for deaf people, when they're crossing the road, they're unable to hear the cars. So it was like a safety hazard that they had. I don't, I don't think it'd be too difficult for Tesla to do something like that. I mean, the car can drive itself. I'm sure it can make some sounds. So I, I could be, I would be surprised if they wouldn't make it sound, you know, like you're rocking a 67 fastback and, you know, just going zero to 60 as fast as you can uh, with the sound there. I, could, I mean, that could that definitely be a joke, way to bring those people amazing. in. <laughs> yeah, no, actually that, that is, that is true about the, the Europe thing. I was reading that article a couple, like maybe a year ago sense. or so, but yeah, anyway, uh, just wanted to know out of all these names that we're talking about here, I mean, we, we've mentioned probably five or 10 companies that are all getting into this space, either have, you know, got strong dominance already or just working to get any type of share at all. Which ones do you see as being the potential leaders or maybe the continued leaders, you know, the big market cap winners like, you know, Tesla or something, maybe Neo, maybe SPAC. I know everyone's going crazy about, and, and we're talking SPAQ, not SPACs as like the uh, the blank shell private company kind of thing. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that too, Sheikdal. I think Tesla with the lead it has is going to be around the industry for forever. At this point, they've solidified their place as a major player for a decade or more to come. Infrastructure-wise, I like what Neo is doing in China. I think that that model really fits the goals of the CCP over there, and the CCP probably has their back seeing what Tesla's been able to do. So their model, in case you're not familiar with it, is instead of you going home and charging your battery, there are basically stations where you go and you get a battery swap and they charge your battery there. It uh, makes the, as the technology develops, you're going to get quicker swaps, you're going to get better batteries, you're going to increase the number of middle-class working people in China, and you're going to have a competitor with Tesla for years to come. So I think that the CCP really likes that and I can see that infrastructure, if it works there, definitely working in Europe and definitely working in some of the Baltic nations as well. It'll be harder for it to be employed across anything other than East and West Coast America, and it would have to start at gas stations. So that, that kind of a service-based product um, service mix is something that I really like for Neo moving forward, especially in China and Europe. We'll see if, I think there's definitely space moving forward for both Tesla's model and the Neo model to work. Uh, it's going to benefit different ones geographically, depending on how well Tesla could do with mileage on their batteries, as well as just the prevalence of uh, different socioeconomic niceties, depending on where the buyers are. So in the US, we'll expect Tesla with that independent streak and the ability to have a charging station at your home to continue uh, in places like uh, Europe and China, we'll see Neo have dominance more and more moving forward. I wouldn't discount that Tesla ends up at least um, co-opting or licensing that technology to have both offerings in those spaces, but it's going to be a harder sell um, both politically for them because they're they're pretty soon going to be a major political bargaining chip if they aren't already, as well as financially because they're going to have to give up a lot of either technology or money to do that kind of a thing in China. Awesome. This has been incredibly enlightening to say the least, Sheikhtal. The last question I'll, I'll leave our followers and our listen, listeners is, where is Nikola in one year from today? Oh, man. 
Um, Gotta give you a tough one here at the end. That's a good question. Um, I think it'll surprise to the upside a little bit. Uh, if GM has gone this deep into it and they've removed the CEO at this point, they've pretty much got control over how this goes forward as long as they have a product in a year that is something that I think will beat most people's expectations. So right now, people are calling for it to go to zero. I don't think it goes to zero. I think it goes to single digits. And I think it hangs out there. And I think we see GM do their best job possible really salvaging this relationship. I don't think they can afford the fallout of this failing. And I still think it was the right decision for GM. I just think it was the wrong target at the wrong time. So hopefully it doesn't scare other companies away from this because I think for Ford rocking $180 billion in debt, they need something like this and they need it yesterday. So hopefully it's something which doesn't scare Ford in particular way, but I can see Toyota doing something like this as well. Leverage that infrastructure, leverage your end-to-end sales structure, um, leverage those existing places where you've got uh, the ability to do repairs and you've really got yourself uh, an existing infrastructure to rely off of, but you really can't at this point use the Ford GM or Toyota name for this. It's not what your customers are looking to you for. You really need a different name to go along with that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Our first guest, Sheikdal, was the first ever winner of the Ponder's thesis pick. And so huge fan of Sheikdal and happy to have you on the show here. Big thanks for coming on, Sheikdal. Uh, we'll probably have to bring you on again for some biotech talk because, you know, that, that's your area. So really want to know. I mean, you've done a great job with this. So I'm sure you'll do just as good, if not better with that. So once again, big thanks for all the support and just coming on our show and definitely we'll be chatting with you in the future. All right. Appreciate it, guys. You have a good one. We give back to the fans, right? We're bringing them on the show. Which yeah. brings us to the next uh, segment here. Of, of course, we got questions from the fans. We do it for you guys, right? And it's really fun for us to do, of course, but we want to bring you guys into the show. So the first question comes in here from Doug E. Fresh. Seems that the low rates and the Fed firepower have cooled off the BTFD, which stands for buy the dip mentality. What do we need to take us higher? And if we don't get any stimulus, what do the next six months look like? So- this is actually a fantastic question. We touched on some of this stuff earlier, but I do want to pound it again because it's pretty much the most important question that you can ask in this market is like, what the hell is going to happen? Obviously, the most important thing that made us rally was low rates, which that is not changing. I'll tell you that right now. If that changes, if rates get raised soon, we are going to have the most ridiculously epic crash you'll ever see like as bad as March, maybe not as bad because that was just like, you know, a one-off, like probably won't happen again for many, many, many years if it happens again like that. But it will, it will probably get back to that level. Honestly, it'll be a a sustained serious drop. So if they even hint at raising rates, literally I will sell everything I have. I will short the market to 2000. Like that's, what's going to happen. That is the worst thing that they could do right now. The Fed's firepower, right? Like they they bought a ton of assets and they, they said they're gonna hold bonds to maturity, right? That's four or five years from now. A lot of bonds expire at 2024, 2025. So that is gonna be okay for now. Um, you know, a lot of those assets are on the sheet and they're not coming off. And they are winding down some stuff um slightly and slightly. And a lot of that has to do with them having to roll over contracts that are expiring and such. But the biggest thing for me is that this buy the dip mentality has and I like that you, you know, bleeped out the F for it because we are a 
you know, PG-13 show now? Family show. Family show. <laughs> family show. It's a family show. Um, but that <laughs> mentality is kind of the reason why we, I mean, that's definitely the reason why we rallied so hard. And it's also the reason why we crash so fast when we crash, because everyone gets so bullish that they see a dip, they buy it, and the dip and the dip and the dip continues, and they keep buying it, and then people get blown out. So, you know, I would have actually liked for the market to have rallied a little bit slower because um, the, the drops would not have been so aggressive. Um, the, w- the way that I'm looking at it now, what do we need to take us higher is we really need that stimulus deal to go through that, you know, Congress reserve, like that's that $2.4, $2.2 trillion stimulus deal that they were talking about today. That needs to get passed. And, and I know that what's really happening here, in my opinion, is that Pelosi is kind of having to bend the knee, right? Because house races are up and stuff. And, and you kind of see that nobody everyone wants stimulus. You're not going to get anyone who's like, no, nah, I don't, I don't really want stimulus because it's going to impact the majority of Americans through like a higher stock market, a better economy, whether it's like trickling in from the left or the right, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. You know, you need to put money in the hands of people who need it in some way or another. But if we don't get any type of stimulus, I think that the chop will continue. Like, I don't think we're going to have that kind of vicious rally back that we all are expecting. And I think a lot of people are expecting it. So Definitely look out for that. But the most important things in this market are interest rates, Fed's firepower, and congressional stimulus. Unless we get a massive like coronavirus increase that's three or four times worse than it was before, then you know everything's going to be fine as long as those things continue. Where's Andrew Yang when you need him, man? He was calling <laughs> this way back in the day. Next question uh, comes from, I hope I'm saying this right, Lahana said, can you shed some light on Rocket? And so Rocket was one of our thesis picks a few weeks back. Do you think that's still a buy, Tony? Yeah, Rocket Mortgages, RKT. In my opinion, this thing has gotten sold off because people are believing again, and they're wrong again, that coronavirus coming back or having a second wave and impacting the markets is bad for residential home buying mortgages. It's clearly not. Like You've seen home buying up higher than it's been in a long, long time. It's making like, I think it had a recent monthly high of like the last many like decade or so. And so in my opinion, this is a buy and apart from just the, the meta statistics and you know, macro data on home buying and the markets and the economy and everything, this company's a beast. Like this company's quarter report last quarter and their profit on what they've done is actually nuts. So I'm actually continuing to add this. I actually recently saw some call sweeps go by. So people are loading this. They're selling puts long-term. And this is a $20 stock. Obviously, it's got a huge market cap, so there's a lot of shares out of it. Um, not massive market cap. I don't know what it is now. It was something like $40 billion. I think it's $30 billion now, maybe. But for me, this is not something I'm selling. Like I will hold this. I will add this, and, and I will continue to hold and add this. Premiums on it are pretty cheap. So I'm actually long some 21 calls for, I think, middle of October. I, I think it could easily get back to 30. Like I, I don't really see why they sold it off so significantly. Now it's sitting around 20, 21. So I will be expecting a move back to 30. That's an interesting one for me. I think people looked at it as kind of because it had an app and it had that tech vibe to it. So I think that was the initial pop, but I, I agree with you. I do think it's a strong company overall. I'm chilling on my stock. I'm not buying more personally. Jonah Caparos said, can you tell us just what IWM leaps do you personally own? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to. So uh, when the market crashed crazily and IWM was significantly down, I obviously waited for it to rebound a little bit. And when it was around 120, so it bounced 20% from there already after being down like 50, I was loading the 175, 180, 
185, 190, 195, 200 leaps for January 2022. So whenever I'm buying leaps on indices, I like to buy a lot of time because you don't know how long it takes for the market to rally. If there's a correction, those leaps will hold up decently. But I did sell the first three legs of that and I held my 190, 195, and 200s for January 2021. And I'm actually looking to roll those on the next rally into March or June or maybe the next year if those, I don't know if those options are available yet, but when they will be, I will roll further because I just want to have time. I don't mind paying a dollar more for another year because clearly things can get way, way better. Um, I'm a long-term bull, right? So I think that that is a, a great strategy for somebody who's wanting to get exposure to stuff, not right now, and doesn't want to put a ton of money in his leaps on indices, like index ETFs, such as IWM, uh, QQQ, SPY. So for me, I bought a lot of SPY 300s for Jan 2022 when the market corrected all the way down. And it's nuts. Those went from five to 60. I wish I would have held them. Um, and I wish I would have made it a bigger position, but that's the kind of return you can get on a crazy rally like this. And they hold up super well because there's so much time on them. So that, that for me is what I'll be looking for also to add as we start bouncing back. All right, Tony, we got our last question here, man. Ricardo MP, he's asking, I'd love to learn about optimizing my IRA strategy. If we have an active portfolio of high growth companies, is it best to just index our IRA and the S&P? What about owning larger companies we love there? ETFs, perhaps SPACs, or even bonds? This is like the mother of all questions, honestly. Um, Seriously. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just like, there's so many different things that you can invest in, right? So if you want to have an active portfolio of high growth companies, first of all, there's no way you can index that to the S&P 500. Most of those growth companies are nowhere near getting into the S&P 500. Like the closest one you could say is like Tesla and maybe Zoom. But if you want to index your IRA to the S&P 500, first of all, you're better off just buying SPY. A, you'll get a dividend. B, you don't have to have 500 different positions. In terms of owning larger companies that you love in the S&P 500, I would make that a portion of your portfolio. The way that I structure like my fund and I would do my own IRA is by setting an allocation of like risk that I want. So say you have 100% of the full pie. You want to have however much you want, you know, you want X percent in growth, X percent in stable companies that pay dividend or X percent in SPACs. First of all, like I don't ever do bonds. I don't touch bonds. I think, I think bonds are horrible in this market right now, you know, unless you're doing like some type of corporate bond, like UAL bonds, I went to 52 and then 75, like that's, that's okay. Right. Like that's a great trade that one of my friends made, but I am not buying treasury bills here. That is probably the world's single worst investment right now. I definitely would go SPACs over bonds. I think SPACs have the potential for that unlimited upside as any stock does. You just don't know when that's going to happen, right? The merger needs to go through, the acquisition needs to happen, and then the stock or the SPAC can rally. But it's just a big question for yourself to ask, what kind of risk profile do I want to take on? So for me, I'm like probably two thirds, if not more, I might be underselling that a lot into these high growth names. And the rest of it is like some type of option play, a couple bigger growth companies like like Tesla and NVIDIA and Adobe that I enjoy. And the rest of that is just those high growth names. And I trade around my core position. So that is one way to do it, but it's completely up to you. I don't own ETFs. I think that the only ETFs I really like are the BlackRock ETFs, IGV, IHI, uh, those, like the MedTech and the software cloud mm-hmm. ETF. I think yeah, BlackRock does a great job of making those ETFs and they've performed really, really well. Or 
ARK Invest ETFs have done incredibly well during this market pandemic. And furthermore, after it, they've done exceptional. Those are probably the best ETFs on the market, in my opinion. So just all about your own risk profile, you know, whatever you're comfortable investing in, in terms of your risk. We're getting to the end of the show, and it's everyone's favorite part of the show where we pick a few stocks to keep an eye on. So what are the five, six, seven, ten stocks <laughs> you're going to be pounding the table on? I am very happy to talk about this section, which I've already mentioned most of these names, because in this type of market that we're having right now, this corrective market, it's so clear to see which stocks are the best stocks in the market. And and like I think a lot of people, they buy companies for 50 different reasons, but at the end of the day, it's all about yield. You know, it's all about the yield that you desire. Maybe you want five, 10%. Maybe you want 100%. I want 100%. But that's just the way I roll. But I want to be buying these growth companies. That's that's what I'm looking into. And so people are always saying, well, if we have a market crash, these growth companies are going to get murdered and their valuations are going to get cut. Those value guys got slaughtered and I and I didn't. So that's that's the difference right there. You buy something like Fiverr, which made an all-time high, Livongo is only down like $10 from its all-time high after the merger and all that stuff that happened. SC is literally down $10 from its all-time high. And that's like not even 10% for those stocks. So that's incredible. And those show you the relative strength that people want to be buying those type of stocks. So I'll just list out the names and I'll tell you why. So Fiverr, for the reason I just said, Livongo, C Limited, Tesla, in my opinion, you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking and like, I was like, okay, well, I took Tesla from 200 to 2,500. What do I do now? I'm going to buy more Tesla. And I've been buying more Tesla on all these dips. It is to me going to be a trillion to $5 trillion company. And you can quote me on that because, you know, I've been quoted when it was a hundred saying it was going to go to a thousand and it went to 2,500. So going to 10,000 pre-split would not surprise me. I mean, they have so much down the pipeline and it just started being looked at properly like a year ago. Um, I think that this thing can churn out incredible revenue and incredible profit in the coming years, regardless of the EV credit. They're going to expand into things that you don't even think about that I don't even think about right now. Things that I can't even conceptualize what Musk is going to say, this is going to be a good revenue producing stream for us. They're buying so that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they're, 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 they're doing things. And this is like, this is literally Apple, right? Like, and I, and I made it, I wrote this article and I'll, and I'll actually post this on Twitter for this article like five or six years ago saying that Tesla's the next Apple when it was like 120 saying that they would do they would buy solar city they would do solar panel roofs they would you know produce semi trucks they would do all they would do the regular cyber truck they would do all this so this all came true because Apple and Tesla to me are really identical companies so Tesla's going to continue to revolutionize i think that people who think Tesla's going to go back to 100 right now is the the dumbest thing i've ever heard it's not happening in my opinion. Mealy, I like yeah. a lot because the dollar has gone up significantly recently. Um, not obviously where it was a couple months ago, but the dollar has been going up and it's starting to correct, right? So that is really, really bullish for non-US stocks such as Mercado Libre and C Limited. So that's why I'm really bullish on those two names. OM, which we talked about in the last podcast. Actually, we didn't talk about this because I discovered this randomly when I was just scrolling through finding another stock to talk about on the podcast and then it IPO'd before we could talk about it. But I'm a huge fan of this company. I posted a thread on this on Twitter. Dialysis is going to be massive. And I think that this is something that is going to actually change the medical field. And I think dialysis is one of the biggest costs in the healthcare industry. 
and it did IPO over 100% over its pricing, the price it was supposed to be priced at. So I'm going to be continuing to scale into this position. I'm not a, rushing into it uh, just because it did IPO at 50 and it was supposed to be IPO at around 22, 24. Um, so it is 100% premium, but there's a reason for it. I and mean, look at Snow. Square SQ, once again, one of the most strong stocks in this market. And, and I think it'll continue to be. And, and this actually has the potential, in my opinion, to be a $500 billion company. And I know a lot of people don't agree. And that's that's okay. We'll see. Invitae, NVTA. So I have to give a shout out to Ophir Gottlieb on Twitter. Guy is a beast. He is the first person I heard about this stock from a couple of years ago. And I've continued to hold it. And it's recently just gotten to new highs and done super, super well in this market. And as you know, medtech in general is pretty much recession proof in terms of like you know, comparing it to the other sectors and other types of stocks in the market. So BioLife Sciences, BLFS as well. Those two are um, some of my biggest holdings now. And I'm going to continue to have those be in, you know, in a significant position size because of the strength that I've seen in this correction and the growth that I see in the future. So for reversals, just purely speculative plays, just, you know, quick movements, because these are the ones that dove the most, Amazon, Shop, NVIDIA, Google, and Booking. Those had had many hundred point dives. And so when we reverse, those will have many hundred point rips. So keep an eye out for those. All right, Tony, that wraps it up, man. Huge, huge shout out to Cheek Doll and all of our fans. Do us, and more importantly, yourselves, a massive favor. Hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And remember, tell your friends, tell your family, even tell that homeless man on the street about pounding the table because everyone needs some love. And we're happy to give it. So have a great trading week, everyone. We'll see you next week.